0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, Luke 9, reading verses 51 to 62. We had paused, Luke, now probably about half a year ago, something like that, as we took a break going through this Gospel. We had paused at a transition point in Luke's Gospel. We're also pausing from that brief little series we we're going through in Proverbs. We will, Lord willing, be able to return to that at different points in the future, but we return now to the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be found on page 1103 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, we turn to your words, words of Jesus Christ spoken to crowds, to religious leaders, to disciples, and to us. Lord, may we hear them, may we be instructed by our great teacher. Lord, bless the words that are spoken here this morning. Let them be true and according to the right interpretation of your word, correctly applied not only in the speaking, but also in the reception. Help us to apply it and be able to, to draw nearer to you through this. That is our great desire, to not only praise your name, but praise you by drawing nearer to you out of a heart that desires to know you. And in this text, we hear a call to follow the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would be those to heed this call. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Luke 9, verses 51 to 62 Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This the reading of Luke chapter 9. People of God, it was theologian Leon Morris who said this, God regularly, regularly tests the earnestness of our hearts, by bringing them to a fork in the road when it becomes necessary to choose between two ways. Which way do we follow? Comfort, custom, convention, or Christ? The test from the very outset of discipleship has been the very words of Jesus from our text, Follow me. There's that test. There's that fork in the road that God often brings his people to, to a choice That's the nature of a fork in the road. You cannot take both ways. You can only choose one, and what will you choose? And we can speak of this in in grand terms, maybe applying it to the very choice of salvation itself, the choice or, or the reception of the promise of the gospel. To, to place faith in Jesus, that would be maybe that grand fork in the road, but, but that grand fork in the road doesn't mean that along that path, God will not present more forks, more, more decisions as we continue to say we have to follow Christ, we have to choose him above this, uh, setting this aside, turning from this path and choosing him yet again. And that's what happens. That's what happens in life, many many different tests, many different ways in which we have to say, no, I follow Christ. It happens on a very, very minor way every day. This text is applicable to not only that great decision of faith itself, but as well every day when we wake up and we say, well, we follow Jesus. And every decision we make in the in-between, and what will we do? Will we follow Jesus? Will we follow the world? Will we follow Jesus? Will we follow our flesh? Those forks in the road. What Jesus is instructing these people here, not only his disciples, but those who are, who are saying, Lord, I will follow you, he's instructing them on what following him means. On what being a disciple really is. On what it means to choose that fork. That we would not just be choosing him in ignorance. That we would not just be naive in what it, what it means to follow him that we would understand it is a total devotion to him, a total rejection of everything else. You see, at the center of a call, follow me, becomes this question. What do you treasure? What is your deepest treasure? And we can know from God's word, we can guarantee it, God will regularly place us in life at those forks in the road, those places where we have to choose him above something, where we have to to dethrone some idol and some treasure that that we have exalted to a position above the Lord and have to turn away from it. Follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is asking those who want to follow him, do you understand what I cost? It's almost like you're you're going to, to make this grand purchase, and the salesman is saying, kind of maybe questioning, can you afford this? Do you know what this costs? No, not in as negative of a way as that, but Jesus is making sure that people understand, do you, under, do you get it? Don't make a light promise. Don't just say, Lord, I follow you without knowing I will cost you everything. Everything you have to give, you have to pay for me. You have to give for me. It's not to undermine salvation by grace through faith. No, but the, the true response of faith is to give it all. And and a true faith is one that gives all away. It is demanded of us. We all have, Lord willing, we, we seated here have made a decision to follow the Lord. And if you haven't, this text speaks to you directly, but... Those who, who have made that decision to follow the Lord, we have to understand as well that that, that, me, that meant and it means for us now, you have given up everything for him. Your life is not yours to be lived. It's, it's meant to be lived for him, and it's meant to be set in the same way Jesus was. To set your face in the same place Jesus has set his, to, to tread as, as, following his example, to tread the same path He laid. God's Word tells us that in relation to the kingdom in Jesus, the only time it's wise to give up everything, the only time it's wise to sell all you have, to give all you have for one thing, is Jesus himself. But understand the cost. We see that here this morning. We'll see that first in a face that is set. It's our first point, a face that is set. That's referring to Jesus' face and where he is setting it. As we see in verses 51 to 56, even when we stopped Luke as we were pausing there, we, we stopped at these verses because it's a major transition and we might miss it. Even the even the way our Bible is, is laid out in chapters and verses doesn't really draw attention to the fact that this presents a very great change in Jesus' ministry. It it isn't just the miracles and instruction that he was doing in that region of Galilee and, and, and laying that foundation of the kingdom. Now he's setting his face towards Jerusalem. Now it's as if that Message and miracles that he was laying the groundwork for is now going to act. It's going to function. It's heading there. He's setting his face to Jerusalem, and that's incredibly important. We we know from what had happened at his transfiguration, we know from what we have gone through in the earlier chapters. Jesus means by this, he is heading to Jerusalem to be taken up, to be crucified, to be raised. To ascend to heaven, that's all involved in this this great exodus that he's doing and bringing about. And so his face is set to Jerusalem, which means his face is set to give everything. To give everything for God, for the Father who has sent him, and for his people whom he's saving. So you see why it makes sense for Jesus to demand of those who will follow him. Do you understand the cost? Because Jesus himself is in a sense, he's paying it. He's giving all of himself. He's setting his face to go do the Father's will. His ministry is leading to give up all that he can give. It's all demanded of him. His face is set. And that's the reason it's important to see these verses. It provides a backdrop to to Jesus' own determination versus those who will say in the next verses, Lord, I want to follow you. You see how determined, you see how Jesus is going about his business. Well, if they're going to follow him, they need to go about the same. He's not not on a joy walk, right? Those who will say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. His face has already been set to Jerusalem, and now he's saying, do you understand where I'm going? Will you follow me there? That's what he says. He says, and this phase begins in this, this context. He sends out those before him, his emissaries preparing his way. They go to a Samaritan village. And what they find there is a rejection. In fact, one of the things that will characterize this phase of Jesus' ministry as he heads towards Jerusalem is rejection. This, this turning and setting his face towards Jerusalem is, is better understood as a theological concept than as if it's a travel itinerary. Him setting his face to Jerusalem doesn't mean he's now on his direct path to Jerusalem. He's, he's going right there. No. Uh, later in Luke, he'll be in a town right next to Jerusalem. Later still, he'll be in a town back in Galilee. It's not as if this final phase of ministry means that he is heading right there right now. It's, it's, a, it's a shifting of focus. It's a theological shift. There's a shift of meaning, of tone, of understanding of what's going on. And, and part of that is signaled by this rejection by these Samaritans. Samaritans were half-blooded Jews. They had a deficient form of their religion. They believed that they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. And so when there are those who are coming and talking about Jesus, and when Jesus himself is setting his face not to Gerizim, but Jerusalem, you see that in the text, when they see his face is set to Jerusalem, well, they they don't respond. They reject him. And then you see the disciples' response. Should we we call down Judgment on them, should we unleash the authority because you've been slighted? We have to be careful that we don't just unnecessarily judge the disciples for what they're doing. They've recognized appropriately so that this village has denied the way of salvation salvation and the king. They've done great honor and dishonor to, to do that and reject him. and so they're outraged on behalf of Jesus, and they're saying, should we call down this judgment? But what they show is that they're not properly understanding the time of what Jesus is doing. They're not properly understanding Jesus' journey to Jerusalem itself. In one sense, they rightly understand that judgment from heaven should and is or will come to those who reject Jesus. They're not wrong about that. They're, they're wrong about how they want to dispense it now. They're not understanding that the time now is for kingdom preaching. The time now is for evangelism. The time now is to go out and make disciples as Jesus himself is heading to pay this. He has not come in judgment yet. That's not the appropriate response. And so he's directing his disciples there, instructing them. His journey then starts with this need for him to rebuke, misapplied zeal of his disciples as well as face rejection. You see what's beginning to characterize the final stage of Jesus' life? Jesus refuses their requests and even instructs them that they need to understand knowing God is the highest priority and that the decision the Samaritans make is a crucial one, but that the current period is one of grace. We're still living in a period of grace. We're still living in a period where, no, the, the judgment hasn't fallen yet. There is a time to repent, but that judgment will come. So we see that in Jesus' face that is set. That's this background to now what is our major focus this morning on faces that are not set, faces unset. The the call of these would-be disciples who want to follow Jesus and how they respond. How are they setting their face? Is their face set in the same way Jesus is or not? We see that their faces are not rightly set because they're weighing the cost for following Christ. They're facing that correct question is, Is Jesus your greatest treasure, or what do you treasure? And Jesus shows in in no uncertain terms how radical and necessary the response to him is. Nothing can get in the way. Nothing can cause a delay. And there better be no naive expectation of what it means to follow him. We see that first in the warning to one with a naive expectation, and then warns us as readers of that we would be warned from following in naive expectations. Look at verses 57 to 58. On the surface to this response, you know, this this man extols and and praises and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And I think our response would probably be, that's tremendous, great. What a great response. That's what we're looking for. That's what we seem to seem so so little of at times. And and want we, we want someone to say that. And we would likely just say, amazing, let's, let's, let's count them as saved, let's bring them into the church. And it's not like that's a wrong response, but it's interesting how Jesus responds to this call, right? He doesn't lower a bar. He doesn't just say, Hey, Peter, you have the ledger. Write a new convert on, we got him. That's not what he does. He almost seems to dissuade. He's not actually, but he's he's making sure he gets it. He's making sure he's not naive in his understanding. This is almost kind of like what can be a negative side to like altar calls. I'm not saying an altar call is intrinsically evil or something like that, but I think we need to be instructed even here from Jesus and, and evangelism itself and how we go about it. You see, it, it isn't just a matter of, of, of getting a confession from someone. Let's just make sure they say these words, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Let's get them in there. Let's make sure they say that. Of course, that profession is necessary. Of course, that call is even necessary. But you see what Jesus is doing. He's not calling for disciples at the expense of understanding. He's not calling for those to follow him, for them not to understand what that means. And for, for one who would come and, and tell us, I will follow Jesus wherever you go, our response could very correctly be, we praise the Lord, but do you, you do know what this means, right? You are yours no longer. You give up all that you are to him. And you set your face in the same way he did to, to suffering, to cross-bearing, to giving, to dying, to sacrifice, to follow him, to say yes to your Lord in every matter and every manner, do you understand what is the cost of following Jesus? That's that's part of it. That's part of evangelism itself. Do you get it? Follow me. It's not a half-hearted measure, and, and, and Jesus won't allow someone who's just sort of engaged That's not discipleship. That's not following him. Look at your life. Is it one that's showing a wholesale selling off of everything that you are for Jesus himself? To rightly weigh that he will cost everything. He costs you everything. It's that parable in the Gospel of the one who found the jewel without price and went and sold everything he had to purchase that plot of land to get that jewel. It's it's that for us. Is, Is that what our life shows? Are we following him? Jesus is not interested in just hearing the confession to follow him. He's interested in having true disciples who understand what following him is. It's not a matter of numbers. It's not a matter of of getting as many people in and losing as many out of the back door as those who come in. It's a a matter of true discipleship. Association with the kingdom will not mean power, but sharing in Jesus' suffering and rejection. And any disciple who would follow Jesus needs to understand that the choice will require total commitment. Jesus is warning against that naive thinking that following him will be a walk in the park. Look at what he says. Look at this. It's a proverb that he's really saying. His response is that foxes and birds have their own place, and he doesn't. Again, do you get it? Is what he's saying. Do you see what following me means? I don't have a palace. I don't have riches here to give to you. I don't have, I don't have worldly grandeur. I don't even have a home. Are you still ready to follow? It's all about weighing up the costs. What's true of the suffering son of man is true of his disciples. Obviously, this means first uh, an application to Jesus. It's Jesus who doesn't have this place to lay his head. But if you're going to follow him, you better in, in part expect the same. Now, how many of how many of us here are homeless? How many of, of us here have no place to lay our heads? Probably very few to none. God provides, he provides greatly. So does that mean it doesn't apply to us? Well, no, it still does because what Jesus is saying is this is your expectation. This is the manner in which you follow. You can't just expect that. You can't just expect good things and sunshine in your life. Are you ready for the hard journey? Are you ready to go to Jerusalem with me? That's kind of what he's saying. One pastor put it well. Is your life one that shows a desire to stay comfortable at the cost of the kingdom? Is your life one that shows a desire to stay comfortable at the cost of the kingdom? Maybe it seems like a good idea, right? The, 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 this, this would-be follower is seemingly making a sincere uh, promise. I will follow you wherever you go. But as times get hard, as, as following the Lord becomes difficult, are we willing to say, you know what, that costs too much? And then we reveal that we haven't we haven't grasped the gospel, we haven't understood Jesus, that we give our all to Him, and that when you've placed your faith in Him, that is what you have said. He's your everything. He gets everything from you. I can just think of of a, a type of American Christianity, right? Yelling to, to Jesus, "We'll follow you wherever you go." And isn't Jesus' response going to be, "I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified"? Are you ready to go with me? He's already warned in Luke in previous chapters what it means. It means taking up a cross and following him. Are we ready to do that in response? Is he worth it? You say yes. Does your life reflect it? Does your life reflect that you are willing to pay everything for him? Your pleasures, your treasures your time your thoughts everything about you is it showing the face that is set towards towards jesus towards jerusalem that's the cost another pastor put it well when trial and trouble comes into your experience is your reaction outrage because the sun's supposed to shine I mean, I fall into that all the time. I, I would imagine all of us do, right? The difficulty comes in, in, in following Jesus. And we say, that can't be the sun is supposed to shine. But, but Jesus' response would be, I told you I wasn't calling you to comfort and ease. I told you I had no place to lay my head. Where? We want to ask, where is my comfort and ease? This is the warning we are to hear. Let's People of God, let's not be naïve about what Jesus costs what the kingdom and following him costs now we see a second warning so the first is to uh, uh, correcting a naive understanding of what discipleship might be but the second is a warning to those with distorted priorities by delayed responses it's it's that's what we see there's a distortion there's a not full understanding of the gravity of the moment right Verses 59 to 60, the second man in the text isn't one who who necessarily volunteers, but it's one who Jesus calls and Jesus tells him, follow me. But the man's response might seem reasonable to us on on a face reading. In, In fact, in ancient Israel, it was considered necessary and a mark of great honor. It was the duty of a son to bury his father, to take care of these particulars and funeral particulars. So in the understanding of that day, he's just doing what's honorable for a child to do. And that's, that, that's when you could just start seeing, well, Jesus' request here is radical. What do you mean you can't even bury your father? What's, what's being asked here? Just What is this man's situation? There's, there's, various, there's various ideas. Some argue that this man is, is actually in the act of burying his recently deceased father. His father has just died. He's in full funeral mode, and that's what's going on right now when Jesus tells him to follow him. Others say, and I would probably land here, that the father is near death, and he is either asking to wait until that happens, understanding that his father is, is going to pass away soon, and waiting to take care of all the family matters, whatever that might be. There's another theory, and another theory is that the whole burial funeral process in that day and age could be referred to take a year long, because the, the father would be laid there in the tomb, It would take about a year as as there would be a decomposing of the flesh, and the oldest son's duty at that time would be to to go back, to take the bones, to put them in an ossuary, that funeral box, to put it into the tomb, to tuck it away more permanently. That maybe that's what's being referred to, as if this this man is saying, Well, wait for me to finish this process. It actually, though, to Jesus' point, doesn't really matter where this man's at, because we, we have to understand Jesus is asking something radical anywhere in this process. Whether his dad has just died, whether he's waiting for his dad to die, or he's waiting to conduct the full funeral rites, that was deemed then, like like we see, as an honorable act. And what Jesus is saying is, no. You see, you you don't get it, do you? You don't get the fact that this is a radical call that's needed now. You don't get the fact that to a call to trust and follow in Jesus, any other response than I will immediately is wrong. Is deficient, doesn't get it. You see, Jesus is asking this man to do a lot because what he's asking is far, far more important. Let's put it this way. It's just we're just illustrating it, but it's like would this man say the same thing if there was a, a, a huge tornado coming right in town? And and it's like, well, let me wait. Let me wait to, to to handle these family matters. And and the point is that just as as necessary as radical a situation is as this tornado heading right through town, your response can't be, I will delay in Jesus' kingdom. Because any heartfelt response to Jesus saying, follow me, and you say, not yet, not quite yet, means you don't understand the gravity of what you're facing. It's worse than that tornado. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's, it's eternal death itself. That's what's at stake. Are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to follow this? It shows that there is no middle ground. There can be no delay. What do you treasure or what is your commitment Is Is it a greater commitment to custom, to what's perceived as the honorable activity? Is it a greater commitment to family? Is that that greater? You have to give up all. Jesus costs everything. You pay everything. Even regarding parents, Jesus shows here, children should honor their parents in a manner that places the calling of God on a higher level. That we place the calling of God on a higher level to everything. There are those. Maybe there are those here who, who have that as well. I'll follow Jesus, just not yet. It's not time. So there are things that I need to do. I'm just not there yet. I need to do some soul searching. I need to be further convinced. Wrong responses, delaying, not hearing... To correct what Jesus has to say. Jesus is also emphasizing here, look at, the, look at the text, he's emphasizing a duty above other things. He tells the man, let the dead bury their dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. A reception, a proper reception, understands the gravity of the kingdom of God, understands that that is what's needed, that that's our first and only true priority. Now when I state it that way, do we say, Amen! kingdom of God is our only true priority. Do our lives reflect it? It's those forks in the road that God brings us to. He gives to us basically daily, in, in, in some small ways and in other large ways, opportunities to show that we are choosing that. We are saying this is the highest priority. Now... This man is an example. God is not calling everyone to forsake their jobs. God doesn't actually, and he's not truly here, calling this man to forsake his family duties. What he's saying is that there's a a ranking of understanding and of principles and of highest privilege is me, is following me, is my kingdom, and everything else is beneath that. And all of our duties, all of our jobs, all of our family responsibilities, everything better show we have that principle down and that we are following Jesus first and foremost and truly only. And every other responsibility is done in service to that. That's the right response. Unswerving devotion to follow him to proclaim his kingdom. Listen to this quote. I think it explains it well. Jesus deliberately means to shake up this disciple, not because Jesus doesn't want us to care for our families or to go to funerals or to go to weddings or to go to baptisms, but because he's emphasizing that one of the things that we need to count in the cost of discipleship is just how important he is. Jesus is saying to this disciple, is your father more important to you than I am important to you? And if he is, then let the dead bury the dead. You understand that sometimes in following Jesus, it means giving ourselves more to our families than we would have been giving to them. But sometimes it means not listening to our families when they are calling to compromise, calling us to compromise our fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in whichever case the issue is, who's most important to us, our families or Jesus? Jesus must be more important to us than anything or anyone else in our life. The newness, the, the radical nature of what Jesus is bringing in is highlighted even more so in the next example. So we've seen a warning to naive responses about what following Jesus means. We see a warning against delayed responses and, and, and a wrong prioritizing of things. But now we see a warning to those with divided attention. warning to those with divided attention in verses 61 and 62. He's warning these who, who have other priorities in mind as well, and are kind of unsure about what it means to follow. But you see how radical it is when you understand the Old Testament background. This man actually makes a request that reminds us of another calling episode. If you're familiar with the story in First Kings 19... Elijah is called to go and ordain, to anoint Elisha as the next prophet. He's, go, go, he's, he's called to go and call Elisha into prophetic service. And he does so by casting his cloak upon him while Elisha is actually plowing. And you'll you notice that Jesus even uses a teaching tool about plowing in the next verse. So as Elisha is is plowing... Elijah casts the cloak on him. It's that call to, to turn away from everything else to follow. And Elisha makes a request of Elijah. He asks to go kiss his mother and father goodbye. And at that time, Elijah says, go ahead. He has no issue with it. It's not even seen to be a negative. So if that were to be in your mind, and you'd think, wait a second. What this would-be disciple was, asked, was asking of Jesus was okay in response to Elijah. But you see, all of a sudden, there's a, a ramping up of, of it. No, it's not okay in it right now. You see, the point what Jesus is saying is someone greater than Elijah is here. Something more necessary is here. And there is no division of attention. There is no delay in this, this response either. You follow and follow immediately. It's it's meant to highlight that radical nature of the kingdom coming and the necessity of responding immediately. It's not to say Elisha had necessarily done something wrong. That's not the point. The point is to say, look how intense this calling is, is that Jesus is giving. Follow me. Can I go say goodbye to my loved ones? No. I cost everything. Fitness for God's kingdom is revealed in our answer to these questions. What do you treasure? Where is your face set? Are you fit for God's kingdom? If you're fit for God's kingdom, your answer is that you treasure Jesus and you set your face towards him and to following him. And nothing else can get in the way. You see the divided attention as well in verse 62 in this Metaphor: This proverb about uh, plowing refers to plowing with your eyes set. Now you can imagine in that day and age, in rocky soil where you needed to not only control animals but the plow by hand. That if you were doing one of these numbers, what what are you going to do? What do you do when you're driving? How does that go? You're swerving. You see, you're not singularly focused. You need that. You need that furrow, that plow to be straight. You need to direct your attention on the goal. And if your attention is divided, boy, you're plowing a very poor field. Again, as... as Understanding instruction, it, it, Jesus isn't saying it means you're worthless in life, as if you aren't there for family, you aren't there for others. In, in other places in God's word, he would clearly show how we are to love our neighbor, how we are to be there for them. But the, the whole point is that we're only going to properly be there for them as if we're plowing singularly focused following Christ. You see, it becomes a divided attention when it's what's vying for the principal place in our life is either Christ or these other things. You can illustrate it in scripture of those who looked back, those who, who set their hands to the plow and looked back. Think of Lot's wife. Very tangible illustration of that. A call from the Lord to turn, a call from the Lord to, to, in his sa- saving of them from this judgment and destruction to turn and go and not look back. And she did. Or you think of the people of Israel. They are brought out of the land of Egypt, and and what do they do? They're looking back constantly. They're saying, oh, what we had in Egypt. Oh, the food we had there. This is getting difficult, and that life may have been better. You see the divided mind? The uncertainty? How are we going to be at following the Lord and plowing this field if we're uncertain about it? And if really what we're looking back to is something that we might desire more? And that can be anything in life. It can can be addictions. It can be sins. It can be temptations. It can be families. It can be life on this earth. It can be our jobs. Are, Are we looking to other matters? Are we looking about with divided attention and not singularly focused on what matters most? Maybe this applies to you who plan to follow Jesus, but right now you want to be Be responsible to yourself. You want to sow your wild oats. You don't want to constrict yourself yet. It's a foolish response. Maybe it applies to you as you've claimed faith, but there's so much in your life that's just dividing your attention, that you're showing you're you're not fundamentally and singularly focused to Jesus and that call, but to other things. And that in reality, it's more you're just living your life and enjoying it here. And Christianity is that addition, it's that add-on. I just want some of it. There's a lot that God offers. I want some of that. I want some of that grace. I want to be able to, to have a church family. I want to be able to turn to God in need. It's that spare tire syndrome. God is our spare tire. When you have a pop tire, it's handy to have. But he's not a spare tire, and the kingdom of God isn't. It's not just sitting in the back of the trunk to be taken out and used and everything else in our attention is worldly, is other things. It's all for God. Or maybe you're hearing this, and it's probably easy for many of us to land here. We're saying, well, we believe. We have faith. And it might seem like a call, a sermon, a message from Jesus on a call to follow me would would be one we don't really need. I follow him, and, and that could be true. But this text is as applicable to us as 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 anyone as to uh, one who needs to believe, because it one it's one that reminds us and directs us to our faith, reorients us to what we've been called to do reorients, reorients us to continue to give of all ourselves, to continue to treasure Jesus above all else, to continue through the, the Holy Spirit's use of texts like these to cut and push off things that might divide or naive expectations. And, and we always, because we're sinful, we always land somewhere in there. At, we We slip. We slip into a naive idea of what following Jesus will be, and we need to be brought back from texts like these to to show, no, following the Lord is 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 hard at times, and don't be naive about that. Or or we have that divided attention, and we and, and this text can be used to show us we need to put these things away. We need to reorient our life to the profession that we make. Follow me, Jesus says. What do you treasure? Now, I I want to end with an encouraging truth. You know, we have all these warnings, but here's the encouragement here and and the, the great comfort. Jesus is not saying this so that people would not follow him. He's not a bad salesman, right? There are some salesmen who are like, wow, you know what, I probably would have bought that before talking to you, but you just talked me right out of it, right? No, that's not what Jesus is. He's not having a bad sales pitch that's saying, you know what, you're right, I'm not going to follow you. uh, you, You've talked me out of it. No. You see, Jesus is being frank and honest and honest to make true disciples. And the encouraging thought is, when we have this proper understanding, what you achieve, what you gain, is the greatest treasure. Because that's the point. He's asking all these people, what do I cost? I cost everything. But Jesus is the only one who who delivers. And in gaining Jesus, you you gain everything. Everything. You see, the encouraging truth is that to embrace this way of life, to plow straight, to not have divided attention, to put no one before the Lord means that you follow Jesus and have it all. Because he's worth it. We ask that, what do you treasure? What is Jesus worth? Are we fools to give ourselves fully to him? And the answer is no. Luke will say later in chapter 18, 29 and 30, or rather Luke will record Jesus' words in Luke eighteen, twenty-nine, and 30, and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, by what he's saying there, you get it already. And, and, and those who are truly faithful and trust in the Lord understand this. You already know that the cost of Jesus is well worth the price. You already know that there is nothing that can stand in his way and that you would rather have him than anything else. And you experience the true gospel, peace, joy, comfort, and provision from a steadfastly faithful God. You experience it now already and will be given many times more than what you've even received now. So here's that encouraging thought. You, through the power of Jesus, are given faith and true faith in him to be fully blessed in him, to follow him, to cast all others away and receive eternal life, blessed life with God himself. Another quote. Jesus gives full disclosure here. He says, I'm greater than anything that you can give up. I'm greater than your mother or your father. I'm greater than anything in life. Everything in life that you treasure the most, I'm worth it all. Jesus is saying you can't give up more than I'm going to give you, but you must be ready to give up everything that you hold dear for me people of God, lay aside all else and pass the test. Take the fork in the road that follows Jesus. Follow him. He's well, well worth the cost. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are instructed in your word and and in Jesus' words here. And we pray that, one, we would be disciples that understand the time that understand that at this time our face is set to kingdom proclamation, that this time is a time of grace and a time where there is a withholding of judgment, and that your gospel and your kingdom message is to go forth. Help us to understand that time, but help us to see as well in Jesus' instruction that his face was set to obedience, his face was set to his ministry, to sacrifice, to cross-bearing, to save us all, And in the same manner that our face would be set to follow him in the right way. And keep us from divided attention. Keep us from naive responses. Keep us from delaying what we should be following now. And if there are those here who have not embraced, help those to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that even though on this earth there is difficulty, even on this earth you did not have a place to lay your head that following you is the key to eternal, bountiful life, which is to know God. Lord, we know and have counted the cost and have seen that you are worthy and our greatest treasure. And so then, help us to treasure you in that way every moment of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name.